So Scatman's gone. Oh, interesting. So like the hotel consumed him. Why are you? <laughs> he got he got a record deal. That's why. <laughs> we finally got it in. <laughs> You're welcome, America. <laughs> From Rosemary's Baby and Reagan McNeil, to Jason, Freddie, and Chucky, to Samara, Jigsaw, and Pennywise, we can't get enough. If it's blood-curdling, spine-tingling, breath-quickening, or soul-stealing, we are ready to watch it. Welcome to Hilltop Horror Movie Reviews. I'm your host, Ray Richards. With me tonight are my two co-hosts, Anne Conley. Hi, guys. And Helen Stewart. Hello. All right, tonight we are going to review the classic 1980 horror film, The Shining, produced and directed by Stanley Kubrick and co-written with novelist Diane Johnson. The film is based on Stephen King's 1977 novel of the same name. Production took place almost exclusively at EMI L Street Studios, with set strongly based on real locations. Kubrick often worked with a small crew, which allowed him to do many takes, sometimes to the exhaustion of actors and staff. The new Steadicam was used in several scenes, giving the film an innovative and immersive look and feel. Because of inconsistencies, ambiguities, symbolisms, and differences from the book, there have been much speculation into the meanings and actions of the movie. There were several versions for theatrical releases, each being shorter than the prior, with about 27 minutes cut. Although contemporary responses from the critics were mixed, assessment became more favorable in following decades and is now widely regarded as one of the greatest horror films ever made. The Shining is widely acclaimed by today's critics, and has become a staple of pop culture. In 2018, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. All right, well, before we start the review, we usually go through and talk about what our expectations were. So, Anne, you want to give us your expectations? Man, I, I don't know where to begin. This is such a classic movie, and I feel like now that I've seen it, now that we've watched it, I feel like we're really earning our stripes as horror movie reviewers. What do you guys think? Did you feel the same way? I'd never seen it before, and I was almost like a, like a faker before now. No, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, we've reviewed uh, The Exorcist, uh, Halloween, uh, 1978, you know, so we've been doing some of the classics, and I do feel like now that we've got The Shining under our belt, we're kind of growing up a little bit. I agree. I feel like as as we add more to the the notches on the bedpost, shall we say? Whoa, whoa! Like you just feel like a little bit more, like you have more street cred, <laughs> for for sure. Now I feel like we could go to a convention and we like wouldn't be completely embarrassed that we hadn't seen <laughs> at yeah. least The Shining, yeah. right? <laughs> ne- ne- next come the tats, <laughs> Helen. Oh yeah. Okay. So I have watched this before. I don't remember. When I feel like it was recently, like in the last decade or so. So I guess it's recent for me. <laughs> Man, we know when we're getting old recently, in the last 10 years. Yeah, it wasn't when I was seven. But um, <laughs> I feel like I, I missed a lot of – either I missed or I don't remember a lot of it. So I, I know I enjoyed it before, but I definitely enjoyed it this time around. Yeah, I'll say that I have never seen this movie either, although I have read a number of Stephen King's um, novels. So I'm familiar with him as a writer, although I know he didn't write this screenplay. 
And unfortunately, I didn't get to watch this movie twice like I've seen the last number of reviews that we've done. When we watch the movie, I watched it twice. And I feel like that helps because sometimes when you watch a movie for the first time, you're just kind of getting used to what they're trying to do. And then watching it a second time really kind of sets it in. Didn't get a chance to do that with this movie. I think I would have liked to, but... um, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I have to say, I'm kind of shocked that this is the first time you saw it because when we talked about watching it, you had this. Oh man, it's a slow burn. Well, I knew that. I, <laughs> mo- most of what most of what I know about The Shining as a movie is through osmosis, right? I mean, you okay. have all the iconic "Here's Johnny" and the whole, you know, all that, and him going through the through the hedge maze with the axe and all of those things. I mean, I think The Simpsons has done multiple episodes, kind mm-hmm. of parodying. I mean, so many movies have parodied that. Yeah, you've seen it mocked through decades, just through multiple media outlets in various forms. Exactly. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, I mean, you hear it's from the 70s, right? Did 1980. 1980. Oh, just in 1980. And then we were queuing it up and it was like two and a half hours. And you're like, holy Jesus. <laughs> don't don't start watching this at 11 o'clock at night. Um, so you're like, oh, man, we're really going to be in for this. But We'll get into it a little bit, but uh, I liked it. I thought it drew us in and kept it going. Spoiler alert. Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, with that, and why don't you play the trailer? And it's trailer time. Okay. Action. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970? Well, a man named Charles Grady is the winter caretaker. And he came up here with his wife and two little girls, I think about eight and ten. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family with an axe. You can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. Do you really want to go and live in that hotel for the winter? Sure I do. Sure. Fine. Yeah, I guess so. For some people, uh, solitude and isolation can of itself become a problem. Jack Torrance arrives at the mountain-isolated Overlook Hotel, far from town, to be interviewed for the position of winter caretaker. Once hired, former teacher Jack plans to use the hotel's solitude to write. 
The hotel, built on the site of an in-Native American burial ground, closes during the snowed-in months. Manager Stuart Ullman tells Jack about the hotel's history since its 1907 construction, but he also warns him about its deceiving reputation from a tragedy in the winter of 1970, where a previous caretaker, Charles Grady, supposedly developed cabin fever and killed his family, wife and two daughters, and himself. Despite the creepy story, Jack is impressed with the hotel and is excited when he gets the job. In Boulder, Jack's son Danny Torrance has a terrifying premonition about the hotel, viewing a cascade of blood emerging from an elevator door and then falls into a trance. Jack's wife Wendy tells a doctor that Danny has an imaginary friend named Tony and that Jack has given up drinking because he dislocated Danny's shoulder following a binge. (laughs) So intense. Okay, first of all, can we start with the Native American burial ground? (laughs) How many movies in this era specifically reference the native american well, burial ground at least poltergeist which is That's made in thinking. 8081 right, right? Yes. directly same and is that like where like this meme begins type of thing i don't know where they both got it from and, and considering that it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the movie whatsoever yeah it, this felt like one of those like it was a meme already like it was just that soundbite thrown in there by the way it was on a native american burial ground and you know the locals even had to fight us for blah 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 I have a okay. weird fun fact about this oh. at the end. So, oh. Yeah. It might oh. explain this. Do you want to you share? Want to, you yeah. want to know? Yeah, go ahead. Right. Do it. I, I do second. want it. Let's do it. They, there, there may be a theme of American Indian genocide. Oh. Oh. So I guess some person either did a documentary or wrote about it, but because the hotel was built on an Indian burial ground, there's Native American motifs throughout the hotel. The name of the hotel is an overlook. And then the Calumet baking powder cans have the Indian, Native American Indian figure on it. Yeah, but that's like, those still exist today. That's just the branding. Right. So with the overlook, they say that Americans overlooked the crimes made against the Native American people and that we would overlook these common themes throughout the movie because we're just ignoring it all. But I don't know why. Because Stanley Kubrick was in, in English? Try or to just live there. into a lot yeah. going on there. Either way, he doesn't strike me as someone who would care much to put it in some super deep subtext. Maybe Diane Johnson did it. There's also something about the Holocaust. Okay. Yeah, it gets crazy. Wow, this is... <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was going to be a fun podcast. Man, we're getting really serious, yeah. real-world themes real yeah. fast on this one. All right, all, all I was saying about the Native American burial ground was, to use your word, Ray, is it's such a, a horror movie trope, right? Yep. And it's like right off, right off the get-go. Um, pretty funny, but you know, just to jump into the family nucleus, holy cow, like who, who saw that coming? First of all, you've got the creepy little kid with the creepy little voice. Oh God, I hated that. Am I buddy daddy? (laughs) You're like, oh my God. Also, what did the casting look like for that? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't really think that, uh, Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall really make a very good pair in this movie as far as a believable husband and a believable wife i mean i'm gonna try not to get too harsh on shelly duvall and wendy the the mom the character but it's gonna be tough through this review but i will say this let me me take it back 
to the very beginning. So the very first shot is this weird helicopter sideways across this island in the middle of this river shot. And I was like, is this the movie? And then the mu- <laughs> then Kubrick's music brrr, comes in and I'm like, yep, this is the movie. So that would like set the tone. There's like this whole stretch of like just driving, him driving up to, the, to have an interview. It does give you the sense of how far away this place is, which I think is really cool. Um, and like you said, and the movie's like two hours and 30 minutes or 20 minutes or something like that, extremely long, but I felt like generally it didn't, it didn't feel that long. I don't know if that's just because Kubrick's so good at kind of giving you long breathing scenes and not making them seem like they drag. Um, so I was impressed with the, with the very beginning. I will say though, one character I automatically kind of like liked was the manager, Stuart Ullman. What do you guys think about him? If, if anything. So he's the one where... Jack has the interview with. Yeah, and he's telling him the story. Yeah. The story was hilarious. I was laughing so hard. You're I, telling I, this tragic story, and you're like, oh, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked him. I didn't feel either way about him. Well, considering that Jack Nicholson is supposed to be, like, the main character and the – not the protagonist, but at this point, I would expect that he would be a good guy. But, like, he already looks like he's getting ready to kill people. He's like Jack Nicholson. Like, you got the, the smile and, like, the eyebrows going and all this craziness. And I felt like at least Stuart Ullman was, like, a real honest kind of good guy. He's like, hey, you know, come up here. But, you know, I got to tell you, there's some crazy stuff that goes on. And then um, Jack drops this, oh, you know, my wife will like it. She really likes horror movies. Right. Nowhere else. Could you – first of all, can you imagine Wendy watching horror movies? No. Because all she does throughout the movie is scream and look like her eyes are going to fall out of her head. I mean, she had a good face for surprise. Absolutely. I mean, the actress did a phenomenal job of looking scared and frightened and screaming. But yeah, I thought that the whole storytelling part was – like, I I didn't remember being funny the first time I watched it. And this time I thought that was hilarious. Like, I was laughing. Yeah, I don't remember. I I didn't laugh, but I just thought he was a good character, I guess, was my point. He was, like, very Midwestern, like, very – you know, like friendly and open and kind of just like, oh, I'm just going to tell you all the crazy stuff that goes on here. Yeah. I could see it being funnier the second time around. The first time it seemed a little bit like he was, right, like a middle America incompetent manager. So I was kind of like, this guy's kind of schlumpy like a little bit. But the second go around, it's sort of being the ironic, oh, by the way, (laughs) uh, I should probably mention this family was massacred up here. You know, the temp agency might not have mentioned that, but now that you've driven three and a half hours out here, I might as well mention it. So I can see it definitely being funnier the second go around. And you're right about Jack Nicholson. He is one crazy looking dude. Yeah, and he's crazy from the very beginning. Right. The eyebrows. I mean, he he gets those eyebrows like literally pointed halfway up his forehead. Right? Yeah. And the he gets hair. the teeth going on. Look. Yeah. I like the cowlick he had going on, yep, too. Yeah. I was like, oh, my hair does that, too. <laughs> no, it's he's a, so like relatable. <laughs> well, it's like Apostle with Dan Stevens and his crazy eyes. Like, there's no point in that movie that Dan Stevens isn't throwing the crazy eyes all over. And, and it's like Jack Nicholson here. He, he just can't turn it off. You know what I mean? It's on the entire time, in my opinion. He was more attractive, though, seeing him as like a younger Jack Nicholson. Yeah, he was. Like, you would never ever think of jack nicholson as like not at all sex icon by any means and even this i mean i wouldn't label him that would be a stretch but seeing him younger you know you're kind of like oh wow you were like kind of halfway normal looking Mm -hmm. back in 1980 apparently sure yeah i mean he could get those eyebrows working it for sure (laughs) you might need a little manicure there like little tone up what do do we call this little 
Botox like is a little what fix he, there. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> brow lift. Trim, trim down the eyebrows a bit. Ma- manscaping? Man- no. Threading? No. Wrong well, area. We're, well, up, we're I mean, up north. Well, I don't know. Manscaping <laughs> could be anywhere on a man, right? I think, I think manscaping's it's, allowed to be up top, too. Is it? I always I'm thought you, that I'm was using like, the general term of manscaping, and then not the specific term of manscaping. He, might, yes. he probably needs that, too, because it's 70s. And 80. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he had some back hair like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God they were, it was a winter movie and not on the beach with, like, a shark or something. There you go. So then we move to Wendy, right? And she's talking to the doctor after Danny has his, you know, well, you meet Tony, I guess, the little finger guy. Oh, my God, right? yeah. And Ugh. so this is where I know, this is when the movie started to get a little bit go off track for me. So Wendy is talking to the doctor and apologizing for Jack drinking and dislocating Danny's arm or shoulder. And I'm just like, oh, this is the movie it's going to be. It was 1980, and she's like this wife who's apologizing for her alcoholic husband's behavior. And he looks nuts as it is. I was like, mm, here we go. Then he was a school teacher. So you're like, what? But you didn't hear why he actually was terminated. I'm assuming he was terminated from his job or he, why he gave it up. I know he's trying to be a writer, but it felt like there was more to the story than that. There was in the book. Oh, was there? Yeah, okay, I did it, not read the book. Yeah, I did not read the book either, but I did um, read about the differences between the book and the movie. Okay. And I, apparently Stephen King spends like a third of the book apparently before they ever even get to the hotel. So there's a lot of the sort of backstory. Apparently he was a, he was a um, teacher and he had to, I guess, get rid of some kid off the debate team because the kid stuttered and he got fired this is for mean. it. mean. Well, I mean, you know, it's a debate team. It was team. the 80s, yeah. I'm it, pretty sure. Well, yeah. maybe you can't Bullying get the words out. Thing, I don't yeah. know. But the point is, I, I think he was he was let go because of that. Sorry, so. I was just thinking, or he's really making his point over and over again, but that's a horrible thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're all going to hell. Okay. <laughs> we are. All right. So so what did you guys think of, of both Wendy and the kid, Danny? Well, I, I wanted to say really quickly, sort of to the evolution of that family, that what I wasn't expecting was that I thought at first the movie did a good job of building the family as a good, positive family nucleus. And, and I, I was shocking. I, at first, at very first, I'm getting, weird, face I'm getting so weird looks. so hilarious. Yeah. Horrifying. He did the backup. Go ahead. <laughs> because to Helen's point, they talk about, you know, the dad being a teacher and now he's a writer and he goes up there for the job interview and the kids. So like... You know, and, and it's, it's a slow burn, so it's maybe the first, like, 10 or 15. It's not until you start talking about, uh, to the doctor, about the arm dislocation. That's kind of the big reveal. Because the kid's talking to the imaginary friend, and you're like, okay, like, everybody has imaginary friends. And then he has, like, a seizure. So then you're legitimately concerned for his health. And I thought the mom did an interesting job of starting that whole conversation off like, yeah, you know, uh, you know, everything's fine, da 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 And, um... Oh, that was around the time that he had an accident. And he couldn't go back to school. And then I thought the I thought the doctor was one of my favorite characters. I thought yeah, she was cool. She was phenomenal. I thought her acting was phenomenal. The scripting, obviously, she was just asking really good questions as like a childcare worker, generally speaking, and really kind of got to the bottom of it. Like, well, you know, why did he miss school, or what was this accident about, and how the wife? I didn't feel like. Her acting was phenomenal, along with that dialogue when she talked about the dislocation of the shoulder. And I don't think that was 100% solid. But I liked it that it was kind of like a slow reveal around, oh, well, you know, uh, the kid was playing at home. And, you know, um, Jack came home really late that night. And did, did she say he was drinking at that point? He had had, I don't know. I don't know. Like, yeah, I think he had was out, like, 
alcoholed she, she before like he came slowly, home. Yeah, and yeah. we know that he was yeah. after the fact at least, but kind of slow burned into that. And then it's all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, wait a second. You mean that the father yanked the kid up and dislocated his shoulder? And then all of a sudden I felt that was kind of like the foot in the door to this being a really dysfunctional family and, you know, the husband having sort of this overarching and like abusive relationship with the wife and the kid potentially, but he was trying to be on the mend and, you know, it's the seventies and that thing is sort of horrible to say, but you know, more common or more in some worlds acceptable, socially acceptable. Right. Um, again, horrible to say, but I like that it sort of at least gave us a little bit of pause in the beginning that you were illusioned that the family was okay before kind of going down the rabbit's hole. I would say that because we don't know anything about the family, you would assume that they were okay. I mean, that's the assumption you go into pretty much a lot of movies with. Like, the family must be okay. And, I mean, obviously Jack Nicholson's um, scenes prior in the hotel make you kind of feel like he is a character sort of – I mean, it's Jack Nicholson, so it's already kind of creepy to begin with. But, okay, I can do that. Um, but you don't ever see them together to establish that they're – anywhere good like you say i mean they don't establish that prior to them revealing that he you know broke the kids dislocated the kid's shoulder mm -hmm. um and it's funny that you say that she slow rolled into that because you wonder could you read it that she was like trying to get the doctor to say something so she could tell her and like were her eyes saying please take us in the the kid in Iowa, please, the guys, you know what I mean? I Without like actually saying it. Like avoiding trying well, to admit well, it. I think she was, but then why bring up the accident in the first place? Because you're going to have to end up kind of, well, of course, she's not that intelligent as a character. So no. maybe. But she said something about him missing school because of the accident. Like it, it was plausible how she yeah. backed herself into a corner. Yeah. But you're right. They showed no scenes before any of that of the husband and wife interacting. No, except for he's it's on the phone weird. with her and like they're not particularly warm to each other or he's not particularly warm to her. Although I'm not sure Jack Nicholson and Warm are like two words that go together at all anyway. Haven't you seen Something's Gotta Give? Come on no, now. No, I have not. <gasps> oh, you guys. Before his accident, you kind of see a little bit of where Danny has this kind of almost supernatural power, telepathic. I'm not really quite sure because he sees the Overlook Hotel's elevator and mm -hmm. then the blood kind of gushing through. And then he foresees the dad calling to say he got the job while he's talking to his Tony, Tony. man. Yeah, Tony yep. Finger. Gotcha. So I think that that was kind of interesting to see. Like, where, where is this going to go with him? Is he going to be part of what causes the issues at the hotel? Or, like, what, what does his powers do for him? Yeah, so in the book, apparently, uh, Tony is – he sees Tony in, like, mirrors and stuff. and But he's, like, he can't see him very clearly. So he's kind of like a person. Danny sees Tony. And he tells him stuff. You know, he gives him the information that he gives him kind of in the movie, I guess, or similar information. I thought that – the movie did a pretty good job of making it ambiguous as to whether or not Tony was malevolent or not malevolent or, you know, what his whole situation was, which I think is better than maybe in – from what I understand in the book, he's not really considered to be malevolent. He's not malevolent, malevolent so you're saying he's his buddy in the book? Yeah. I mean he's his buddy in the movie too. You just don't know that. Uh, yeah. Like he's almost malevolent in the sense that he'll protect Danny but he doesn't – I don't think he would care about anybody else. Like, he would do whatever it took to protect Danny. But I, I think he would get Danny in trouble by doing – like, just the way he was saying, like, oh, he talks to me or he hides my mouth so nobody else can see it. I don't know. He felt like a little Well, he, but he feels like it, but he never – The Tony anything, character yeah. doesn't do anything in the movie. He does nothing but sort of, like, help 
kind of try, try to tell people what's going on. Right. And I agree. And I mean, there is a a strong indication in the um in the book, I guess, and it's in the follow up remake of The Shining that Stephen King did in the two thousands or whatever that Tony is really like a future version of Danny telling oh. him things. Oh, okay. I don't know. The scratchy voice was kind of creepy. No, I know. I thought it. I, I thought it was good. I mean, how how do you portray that? Right. And you know, the kid did a good job. I thought of it. Yeah, I was surprised that he did, wasn't like a major actor for having done this because I thought he did a really good job. Maybe it scarred him and decided to get out while getting was good. I don't think he got any gigs from what I read. Oh, it's too bad for yeah. him. Yeah, I mean, he was cute. The family moves into the hotel on closing day and is given a tour. Head chef Dick Holleran surprises Danny by telepathically offering him ice cream. Holleran explains to Danny that he and his grandmother shared this telepathic ability, which he calls Shining. Danny asks if there's anything to be afraid of in the hotel, particularly room 237. Holleran tells Danny that the hotel has a shine to it, along with many memories, not all of which are good. He also tells Danny to stay away from room 237. Man, I wish people would telepathically offer me ice cream. Yeah, no doubt, right? Mm-hmm. I That's like ice cream. Sweet. Yeah, that was a cool scene where he calls him Doc, and they're like, I don't remember telling you that his name was Doc. And you're like, oh, shit. Right. What's going on with that? And then I like that they had him telepathically talking to the kid while he was talking to the mom, not making eye contact with him. Although you would think would be like a little weird. Yeah. Like if I was talking to you and like if I wanted to quickly telepathically talk to the kid, I'd at least make make, make eye contact. Or pause. Yeah. Because be I like, don't know how your brain you works. You want to get some ice cream? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could probably learn to dual talk. But yeah, it was it was kind of intense. Yeah. I like how they're going through the tour. And when it gets to the kitchen part, they're like, yeah, take the misses. And go show her the kitchen because obviously she's <laughs> yeah. the one who's going to be cooking everything. You know, Jack, you come with me and we'll do the manly stuff uh, downstairs. Oh, sticking up for the wife role, huh? Well, I mean, you can def- – I feel like you can definitely tell the the gender roles in this movie are 70s gender roles. I felt like it was definitely assumed in that. But when you looked at what actually happened, so she's like, oh, I don't know how to use these gadgets or whatever in the kitchen. But then she was the one who was actually doing the boiler room stuff. Yeah, absolutely. That's so, what I was like. Yeah, the husband was like a no good, not for nothing, you know, sleep all day and does the writer thing. Meanwhile, he's not actually taking care of the hotel. He's not actually making any food, taking care of the family. Yeah. I mean, he was a big bum, basically, the whole movie. Yeah, and I have a problem with that because he's basically useless <laughs> and he's not sympathetic. Even at the beginning, he's, he's not sympathetic. He's a child abuser. That's the point. Well, he's not in, – in the book, he's not supposed to be. This is one of the reasons Stephen King hates this movie. Because in the book, he's not supposed to be a child abuser, and he's supposed to be warm towards his family. The three of them are supposed to be excited to go and have this winter vacation in this hotel. He wants to do some writing, but in the movie, it almost makes it seem like he has to bring his wife. He has to bring his kid because otherwise they'll be, you know, starved with no money back at wherever they're living. And, like, all he really wants to do is be alone and write. And that's even before the hotel gets its, like, claws in him and makes him crazy. Okay, so we learned about where the term The Shining comes from here. Um, funny enough, actually, in our last review, we talked about Annihilation, or I guess it was two reviews ago, and I was saying how much I hated that title because I thought it totally didn't fit that film, and they used it once in, like, really off, you know, usage. Here they use it, and they use it repeatedly, which I appreciate because it kind of gives some gravitas to the name The Shining, but I still didn't understand. I didn't agree with that being the title of the movie. I was like, I like the idea that that capability was kind of given this special name. And I thought that that was 
special in it of itself. But it's like then they took that and they made it gimmicky. And then they just called the movie The Shining. When you're like, when you say that, it sounds like a proper noun. Not like a phenomenon. Not, not like this gift. It's like, I don't know. I didn't like it. Well, I will say that I imagine, and I have not read the book, and like I said, and I don't know this for certain in the book, but knowing Stephen King and children, I'm going to assume that in the book, his shining plays a bigger role in the movie. Um, in this movie, what I lo- one of the things I like about it is that the child is a child. I mean, he acts like a child. He doesn't have an overly sort of adult response to things like he's traumatized by what happens in room 237 he basically just runs away from his dad like he only really does one thing in the movie that's i want to say smart but while he's in the hedge maze at the end but other than that he's basically just like a kid doing his thing you know and i appreciate that he's not like some super psychic kid that you know whatever yeah i kind of like disagreed with ann on that one just because i felt like the shining was what saved him it's what got Scatman. scat what's his name dick <laughs> Yeah, Dick Holleran. <laughs> uh, it brought Dick to the hotel. And like, if he, that, I mean, that, I guess Dick that, died. That really wasn't any better, I can be honest with you. <laughs> so, I mean, when he dies, like, he's, they still have the snow cat. <laughs> Scatman, snow cat, and Dick. So, it's great. So, so that's, so that's, that's the, that's the <laughs> use like, for the African American in this movie is he's the guy that drives the extra vehicle up so they can. Yeah, so they can escape. He's a chauffeur. <laughs> right before but, he can get murdered. But, but right. See, but see, no, he, I love that character, but, by the way. But think about it this way. Scatman it was the re- best. It doesn't really save them. I'm going to jump real quick to the end. Because the husband freezes in the hedge maze. They don't have to leave. They can just go back to the hotel and stay there. But the hotel was horrifying. But it wasn't really doing anything. Well, I'm would guessing... They, would, they have, would the hotel have... I was going to say effed. With the actual, world. would the hotel have messed them up to that they would have continued? Like, would have the would the bartender have them moved on to them? Well, maybe. I mean, th- there is that potentially, right. but it seemed like the character that was susceptible to it was Jack. But yeah, right. you're right. I mean, maybe it would have gotten gotten to them after that. Yeah. A month passes while Jack's writing goes nowhere. Danny and Wendy explore the hotel's hedge maze, and Holleran goes to Florida. Wendy learns that the phone lines are out due to the heavy snowfall, and Danny has a frightening vision. Jack, increasingly frustrated, starts behaving strangely and becomes prone to violent outbursts. Danny's curiosity about room 237 overcomes him when he sees the room's open door. Later, Wendy finds Jack screaming during a nightmare while asleep at his typewriter. After she awakens him, Jack says he dreamed that he killed her and Danny. Danny arrives and is visibly traumatized with a bruise on his neck, causing Wendy to accuse Jack of abusing him. All right, so one of the things I want to mention real quickly, it's interesting in the movie how, you know, it, it, they set up and then it says a month passes, a month later, right? And then it's a month later. And then it goes into like days. Mm-hmm. Like you're like, okay, a Tuesday? Well, we didn't have a Monday, but that's okay. Then it's like days. And then towards the end, it's like hours or something like that, which I thought was an interesting way of framing the time in the movie. No, yeah, I liked it. I liked it. I thought it was interesting too, yeah. but I thought it was unique, but... It kind of made it feel like, okay, I know, I get the sense of, like, what has been happening during this time frame. Yeah. And although I kind of felt like they didn't make it very far. One month, it's like November or something. Or maybe right. early December. They didn't make it very long into the winter. Yeah, they didn't make it very far. I liked it, too, because it felt, even though you were getting information, it felt disorienting. Because it was like, you know, one month later, you kind of go, oh, 
Uh, all right. Yeah, cool. Because you're going to be here for like six months. So that's fine. And then to your point, Ray, you know, it's like, you know, one week later or something. And then it's like Monday. And you're like, uh, 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 wait, what? Like, you know, you're getting more information, but I like the idea that it felt disorienting and claustrophobic. Yeah, I felt like he used a lot of different ways to make that happen. So you have like the isolation with the snowstorms, you have the hedge mage, the way the study cam kind of followed sure. the tricycle through over with the circles and circles. And you're like, this, none of the layout of this hotel made any sense to me. <laughs> so, and then this time frame thing, I thought it was really interesting how it made it all disorienting and isolating. And yeah, that was a really cool shot of the trike to your point, like that they kept it at kid level, mm -hmm. like really low to the ground. And the fact that he was pedaling and that thing was like weevil wobbling back and yeah. forth was like just the right level of creepy. Like, there's just something about that. And that was the good kid, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was. You know, it's interesting because I, I felt like you – speaking of isolation, and I I know it makes sense from an isolation standpoint, but I don't know if I agree with it, where you don't actually see the family together except for in the car. And even then, I mean, Jack Nicholson really isn't – nobody's warm to each other, I don't feel like. With a kid without a seatbelt on know, leaning over his seat. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's 1980. <laughs> no car seats, no, leaning over the bench seat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sit down and eat your uh, goldfish, kid. Yeah. <laughs> Did we have but, goldfish then? <laughs> but but in the hotel, even, you don't see them together very much. I mean, you never see the three of them together. It's like the mom and the kid mm -hmm. or the mom and Jack. And then there's like the one scene with Jack and the dad basically in in the room in the um their suite or whatever. And the only scene I thought Jack honestly seemed like a good guy was when he wakes up from having that dream because he's he's visibly upset by having the dream of killing them. And the only time he seems to have any warmth towards his family at all, he could just care less about what they're doing or where they are, or what's going on with them in the rest of the movie, I felt like. Does anybody else be my crazy? I was like, oh my God, girl, run away. He's going to like wake up and like slash you. But he didn't. And then to your point, he did seem genuinely upset. Yeah, I agree. I, I thought that was him being most human. You know, the rest of it, he was just kind of like an a-hole. But there I felt like he was, you know, didn't want to be that person. Yeah, and I, and I can't remember. Is the scene with um, the train where, where Danny goes up and, and has the scene with Jack, is that before he has the nightmare or after? I, I don't really remember. It's in that section of the movie. I can't remember the, the exact order. With the train? Well, he went to go get his fire truck. Fire truck, uh, I'm yeah. sorry, not oh. the train. Oh, that's later. You had already had Jack Nicholson yell at his wife to be like, get the fuck out of here while I'm typing and da, da, don't interrupt. So you had already had some scenes where he was beginning to lose his mind, right? Yeah, pretty quickly, by the way. Insomnia, I mean, that escalated really fast. Yeah. Roaming the halls, growling. I had written down he had that oh, crazy yeah, dream. Yeah, that little meltdown that he had was great. Like, he is a really good actor for melting down. Yeah. Like, he is being psychotic. Oh yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. he, I mean, he to you like to watch him. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll say that. I mean, very like Johnny Depp like in the sense that he could be by himself doing stuff and it's interesting, right? Um, I don't know that it was the right kind of interesting at the beginning of the movie. It was a good kind of interesting at the end of the movie, but, but um, yeah, I mean that scene. I don't know exactly where it is, but the scene where Danny and Jack have in in the suite. I thought that was also a good scene for him. I mean, he's kind of crazy, but he kind of admits. Like he's tired and he can't sleep. It's a very human moment, and he's like, "I don't, I, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you, right?" I mean, there's a little bit of like, is your mother saying that? Like, this sort of, you gonna, is she gonna try to take him away? So, like, although he seems somewhat possessive, I do think it's sort of paternal, and he doesn't seem to want to hurt Danny until Danny and the mom are trying to leave. 
I mean, I think if they'd have been like, cool, we're going to stay at the hotel, he'd have been like, cool, you can stay at the hotel, you know, as much as he liked them in the rest of the movie. No way. I totally disagree. But I do think that, you know, he's slowly going insane. And then just these factors of trying to write the book and being unable to do that and the insomnia and then all this kind of influencing him. You know, it was definitely a, a good story of sort of this cabin fever slowly taking over to him becoming totally feverish. And then layering on top of that, just all the mystical stuff kind of happening at the hotel made for this just cool trifecta. Jack wanders into the hotel's gold room and meets a ghostly bartender named Lloyd. Lloyd serves him bourbon whiskey while Jack complains about his marriage. Wendy later tells Jack that Danny told her a crazy woman in one of the rooms attempted to strangle him. Jack investigates room 237 and stumbles upon the ghost of a dead, naked, zombie-like woman, but tells Wendy that he saw nothing. Wendy and Jack argue over whether Danny should be removed from the hotel, and a furious Jack returns to the gold room, now filled with ghosts attending a ball. While attending the ball, a waiter spills a tray of drinks on him and offers to take him to the washroom to clean off his jacket as it will stain while in the bathroom. The waiter reveals himself to be the ghost of Grady. After an awkward post-introductory argument about whether Grady was or was not the caretaker of the hotel, Grady tells Jack that he must correct his wife and child and that Danny has reached out to Halloran using his talent. Meanwhile, Halloran grows concerned about what's going on at the hotel and flies back to Colorado. Danny starts calling out red rum and goes into another trance, referring to himself as Tony. So I think this is my favorite part of the movie. The whole scene at the party, like the bartender was awesome. It felt very Twin Peaks to me. Yeah, I agree with that. With that bartender type person, like his, I don't know, his demeanor and everything. It's like 1920s-esque, so you're wondering you know, what happened here in the hotel. And you've been seeing these kind of like these old pictures on all the, in the room. I don't know if it's like the great room or whatever. So that kind of makes you think that maybe something's tied into there. And then they go into that creepy red bathroom. So there's a lot of red in here too, like a theme of red going around, but that bathroom is creepy as all get out. And then he's talking to Grady and I just, Grady was creepy. I don't know what you guys thought about him, but... I had written down that Nicholson deserves an Oscar for that scene at the bar alone. I just thought that his total meltdown and his conversation with Lloyd, the bartender, was awesome. I mean, the eyebrows were in full effect, (laughs) but it was also just like, you know, he was very real and very creepy all at the same time. And the idea that he was kind of waffling as an individual between these ideals of or, you know, his real character being the dad to the psychotic embodiment of the previous murderer. It's almost like you could see the mental gymnastics going back and forth with him. Yeah, I like how Grady in the bathroom sort of slow walks him to correcting his wife and kid, right? I mean, first he denies that he had any problem with his wife and kids. And then he admits it without really saying that he's admitting it, right? It's almost like he's he's changing the story as he moves forward. And Jack Nicholson doesn't really realize that as as the kind of the conversation moves, right? Um, and then kind of convinces him to go. But I still say that, you know, from Jack, from his character's point of view, the hotel may want the mother and the son dead for more reasons than just Danny's using The Shining to, to you know, call Halloran. But I think Jack really, that's when he buys into the, I got to stop the wife and kid is when they're trying to get away. And he's also introducing somebody coming up, which is going to interrupt his, what I think he feels is like his time to write and to, you know, succeed because he isn't really a success at this point. Right. And I think that's something in his psyche. 
What I was kind of confused about, and maybe the book describes this further, was that you're at this 1920s party, and Grady is there looking probably about 60-ish. I don't know if you would agree. Yeah. Um, and with then, an English accent. With an English accent, yes. <laughs> sure. And um, so, like, he's – when you have the murder described to him in the interview to Jack Nicholson, it's 1970. Yeah, so I'm assuming that the ghosts are all just having this made-up ball, and it's, like, filled with people who have died and or been trapped by this hotel, and Grady's one of them, and Grady's just playing a part within okay. this ball. It does come full circle at the very end with the picture – Kind of. I think that's supposed to loop all that in because Grady says, well, you've always been the caretaker. Right. You know what I mean? When he says, well, you were the caretaker. And he's like, I'm not. And I think at the point at which they're having this ball in the 20s, Grady isn't the caretaker. So I think there's a little bit of that going on. Okay. Yeah, I just was a little confused when that happened because I was trying to figure out the time frame of I, everything. I agree. I was like, was that 1970? I was like 10 years ago. Yeah. And did you really think all those people in the ball were killed in the hotel or something? Well, I mean, they're either spirits that were killed or the hotel's manifesting. That's like what that, I assume. Yeah, that like the, I, I don't really know. Yeah, because nobody else really played a part. You don't see like random ghosts going around. So I do feel like maybe yeah. it was just like this is what the picture was, that event. Yeah. And then everything yeah. else, like the Grady was just actually a character who was stuck in that. Yeah, hotel. because the, similar to the giant waterfall of blood coming out of the elevators, that didn't actually happen, right? That was, again, sort of like a visual manifestation of the hotel. Type yeah, of thing. but the but the two girls uh, being killed, mm -hmm. they that actually quote unquote did happen, right? I mean, right. You think it happened? Yes. Whether and it happened the way he sees it, who knows? But right, right. So I thought the same. It's a mixture of both. You're definitely, to your point, seeing the girls and the wife, right? Who's the rotting corpse in the bathtub, right? That's the same one. I assume she was the wife. I agree. I would assume that, yeah. Oh, right. To oh. your point, like, yes, they're trapped souls in this hotel. But then, yeah, there were things that they showed, like I said, the waterfall, and I assume the, the party were just manifestations from the hotel. Yeah, and I'll say that apparently in the book, when Jack goes to investigate the room, to room 237, I think it's 217 in the book. But mm -hmm. anyway, it is not a naked lady who he decides to maybe want to have sex with. Oh. Uh, then he sees her in as a sort of zombie thing in the in the mirror. It's actually the the boy that he fired off of the debate team. Oh, really? Is, is in the tub, like drowned and whatever. And I guess he tells him like, I don't stutter or something like that. Like oh. Something. So it's much more has to do with kind of Jack and dealing with his his own psyche i guess i really i liked that scene too where it's like the decomposing he well, i mean he thinks he's making out with this hot chick which i'm like really i like the hot chick before the decomposing personally yeah, i was wondering how you felt about that i mean it was like full, totally naked full-on naked she was not ladyscaped though well <laughs> for I mean, the 70s she well, was well she was oh, i she, guess she was she, okay. she she was she was the tame. hedge trimming the hedge trimming was there i mean the same <laughs> as with the hedge maze it was I was wondering for the movies if this was one of the first movies that did a full frontal nudity with this rating. Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I I tend to believe not because I think things were a little looser back in the 70s than they were kind of in the 80s. But I do think that they put her in there because naked women, topless or completely naked, was kind of a staple of horror. You know what I mean? Coming out of the 70s, I think. I mean, you had – Halloween. You got Judith Myers there. Judith Myers. There's yeah. that perfect set. Yep. Yeah, it's like how else are they going to get people to go and see the movie, right? right. Let's put some boobs but in. This wasn't enough a for me to like. I, I was going to say that. Yeah, if this... I was looking for boobs. This wouldn't draw me to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, what did you guys think about when Wendy goes down and uses the radio, but she doesn't like take the radio with her? 
up to the room. I mean, I would have tried to take the radio up to the room, you know, and you had said when we were watching the movie, she should have had like a daily call like, hey, I'm going to call you at noon every day. And if I don't call and you don't get a hold of me, send people because we're in trouble. Yeah, I think it's like working too closely with operations folks for probably my entire life. But I was like, you should schedule that shit. <laughs> I was like, every morning, 9 a.m., no, 8 a.m., you should have a daily check-in. Actually, evening, now that I'm thinking through, I'm like, morning and evening. I think my survival skills are just like really off the charts or something like that. These guys need to hire me. Come on in there and protect <laughs> them, apparently. I think yeah. if you're married to that lunatic, for sure. But just in general, you're there by yourselves. You have no idea whether some freak accident, whether it's weather affecting the whole area or not, is going to cut off your electricity, right? Cut off your radio, cut off your heat, cut off anything. And you're just kind of loosey-goosey. And then I like the idea of moving the radio into the room. But then I was a little bit like, is it like the Ethernet? Like, does it need a specific plug? Or does it actually connect into a physical antenna in the yeah, building? Yeah, it, it, it probably does. Um, so I, I, I was a little bit like, okay, I understand it has to stay there, but yeah, I, I just thought from a pragmatic perspective that, uh, that did not work. But even though she was mousy and you didn't expect much from her, I felt like at least she had some skills in order to get, like she did the boiler room, she does this radio, she gets the, yeah, yeah. You know, the snow cap moving. So I felt like despite the fact that she's appearing as meek and like helpless, she wasn't really that bad. I, I I agree. I thought this was one of those first scenes where you go, oh, like she's kind of got it together. Like she's the, despite, you know, le- being, I don't know what, like a buck ten, she's so like anorexically skinny. Yeah. You're like, oh my God. She was so skinny. It made her hard to relate to. And, and having been a wife of abuse and, you know, kind of her wimpy ah, demeanor, you're just like, oh God. But, um, you know, <laughs> but to, to the point, to your point, Helen, that she was running that show. Yeah. She was the only dependable character in that family. And I think, Ray, that goes back to, like, why you didn't think they were equal matches. But I think despite the fact that he acts like the strong, like, yeah, yeah I'm going to beat you up kind of character, like, I think he needed her in order to get through life. And, yes, she was not attractive to look I, at. But I think he used, but he needed I her think to be he meek. used her. To get through life. Right, yeah. Right? I don't I'm, think it was like a love relationship. I don't sure. know that he needed her to get through life. But I, I will say this about this movie, though. It is, to me, much more of a real portrayal of some marriages, especially in that those gender roles at that period, and also of her sort of freaking out and not being able to get it together, you know, during the times where he's violent towards her. I mean, we are conditioned to think – Oh, you know, your your Xena Warrior Princess is going to kick in, your Wonder Woman, your, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and you're just going to be like, you know, this is my kid, and I'm going to go and, and go all, you know, Laurie Strode on you. You know what I mean? Uh, 2018, not 1978, because 78 <laughs> is much more uh, realistic. And I, I think here, you know, as frustrating it as it is to watch her and be, you just, I want to shake her by the end of the movie, you know, it's I, it's realistic. And the actress does a great job of of portraying complete shock. Yeah, her acting during those scenes, to your point, I mean, <laughs> she looks and sounds legitimately yeah. terrified. Although although it's funny, I watched a behind the scenes kind of documentary that had film they were filming them kind of doing the doing the show and Kubrick is talking to her about um I guess it's when he's coming through the door and every time he like he says something or the, or the axe hits, she like shakes and her eyes go crazy and she's like crying and she's all shaking. And he, and he says to her like, you jump every time he does something. It looks phony. 
Like he's really? trying to dial her back because she's just too much. And I thought, man, you should have dialed her back even more. <laughs> so I heard that she had such high anxiety because of Stanley Kubrick's like over retake, like overdoing, do all the retakes that yeah. like she, that, that, that kind of came out in this, like that she just was like on edge. Yeah. On edge. And she's a donkey on the edge. Maybe that's why she was so skinny. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I eat my anxiety. She apparently does not. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I hate those people. I lose weight when I get so stressed. Skinny. I'm so stressed out. Suck. But, um, but give me that could, ice cream. <laughs> you could, I know she needs some telepathic ice cream. Yes. Um, you could see those cuts too. To your point, which I thought was really interesting. Kind of cool now. Like you know, now we would say, oh, those are continuity errors, but. My two favorite continuity errors in this movie were number one, when Danny was eating the peanut butter sandwich in the beginning of the movie, and suddenly, like, one shot to the other, like, half the sandwich was gone. <laughs> Maybe Tony <laughs> ate it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was the best. Like, they just kept telling that kid, like, just eat, keep eating the sandwich, and we'll just do the line again. Do it again. Okay, yeah. Take another bite. Like, it was just funny. Like, all of a sudden, half the sandwich was gone. And then in this scene, like, to your to your call out with her, him hacking through the door, she's jumping. She's scared. And then I think she gets Danny out the window. And then I think it's at the point where, you know, Jack Nicholson is backing off and going away. Yeah, they, they pull back and he's knocked out double of the door from what he's already hacked out. Now he's hacked out both panels of the door. So definitely a continuity error. But in some way, it kind of gives you the idea where he's actually been hacking it out and continuing this like off screen to a certain extent. Yeah, because you're seeing Halloran come in at that point, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's where it cuts away to him coming up in the snow cat and coming in the... Apparently, his shining doesn't help him much. Oh, but. I loved him. He was cute. Yeah, I loved him too. I mean, him meeting that ridiculously untimely demise was Yeah. I wish he short. had a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. So what do you guys think about um, the red rum part? Because I had never seen this movie before. And obviously, red rum is like one of the big things that you, you mm -hmm. know about this movie through osmosis. And yeah. I was disappointed that, he, you know, he writes red rum. Okay, Why? So I get I mean, it you, now that you said that in the movie, Tony's through the mirrors, that he would always be seeing something backwards, but we wouldn't have gotten it in this. Yeah. And, and even that, like, you know that Jack Nicholson's crazy at this point. It's not really a question. The guy's nuts. Like, the fact that he's out to murder you, I, this is after the scene where he's trying to get the mother and he's like, I'm going to bash your brains in. And she like, oh my gosh, with that freaking bat. And she's has holders it all the way. Oh. Like my son holding his fork all the way at the top. And it's like, <laughs> you have to hold it at the back. And it's like, she's holding this bat and she's like, uh, uh, oh yeah, uh. those are some weak swings. Oh my gosh. Well, she's walking backwards. Like I, I was impressed that she didn't fall because I would have fallen like Ditto. 80 million times. Mm. But, and just got to give her credit. She still whacked him on the head and Right, pulled him into the freezer and successfully locked him in there. So just got to give her credit. Oh yeah, the pulling her, pulling him. That was that's crazy. Although I will say it's probably more realistic uh, that he would get hit in the head with a weak swing like that and then fall down and be okay. Versus normal like movies today, like she'd have hauled off and whacked him right in the head and he'd be dead in reality. You know. Yeah, I, I would have whacked him some more, but yeah. yeah, I thought the same thing. Hit him again. Yeah. Um, but I thought what was interesting in this movie, which I've never really seen before, is exactly like we're saying: is she seemed like a very weak character. I mean, even as a female, you're just like, oh my god, like get it together. But everything that she did was relatively successful. Right. Yeah, it was really impressive. So that was interesting. I sort also... of like not what you're saying, how you're saying it, type of thing. Right. I wanted to shout out to the Scatman's housing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, with the boobs. Oh, we had more boobs. Oh, I forgot about those boobs. boobs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, th those they were all over the place in that apartment. Yeah. Those were, I mean, that's, that's a bachelor pad right there. Yeah. I was like, I wonder who these lovely ladies are. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably his real place. 
They probably oh, just filmed so? in Scatman's house. I mean, I'm like, just saying, where, where you know. Because I assumed he vacationed in Florida, and then here it is. It's like all these naked ladies everywhere. Hey, I'm, I thought it was fine. That all, that was like I think the second thing that made me laugh. There was some other part that made me that, laugh. I can't remember what it was. It was so random to me. It was all hilarious. Of a you're just zooming out from like this, you know, na- naked African American woman, you know, photographing. You're just like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> With her natural hair, it was amazing. Oh, her fro was so cool. It was epic. Really, I was epic. What, what but I, then they look at him and he's on the bed. Then there's another like nude picture of her, and you're just kind of like, no, no, like. <laughs> I get it. Like, dude's a bachelor. He's going to have some cool, like, naked chick photos. Where's the uh, – it was, it was just like a half an inch short of going the pimp route. Like, there was no zebra bed throw, but, you know, n- nothing <laughs> nothing like Austin Powers level. But yeah. everything but the heart-shaped bed. I appreciate. I appreciated the fact that it wasn't like a Playboy picture he had pinned up on his wall. It was like art. It was. You know what I mean? He was like, this is artistic. The whole thing, it went very well with the decor of the room. I'm just saying. (laughs) I'm just saying. No, I appreciated it. I was like, this guy, this guy's got it going on. You're right. I I think that was my favorite favorite part of the movie. (laughs) Yeah, he's still my favorite character. Yeah, absolutely. What I noticed in the movie is Stanley Kubrick did do multiple mirror reverse shots throughout the movie, though. In fact, before I even knew anything about how they were going to reveal the red rum or whatever, which inevitably you get there, you're like, oh, of course they're going to use the mirror. But they did the mirror with him in the bathroom. They did a lot of Jack Nicholson shooting them through the mirror in the hotel room. There's a lot with that mirror. Well, apparently when any of the supernatural stuff happens it's always around a mirror because there was this idea that you don't know whether they're seeing things whether it's them a reflection of their own sort of thing internal processes or if it's actually spiritual at some point what the hell that would have been way cooler i did not get that at all i would have loved the idea of it like is it through the mirror like through the looking glass or is it actuality or is it yeah that is so meta i would have loved that i didn't get that at all yeah apparently like up until the point at which um the spirit's release jack nicholson from the from the pantry you don't really know whether or not it's they're legit or if they're in somebody's mind because i mean obviously once they open the door you know they're right they're legit yeah mm-hmm. corporeal type of thing and yep. it was grady right who released them yeah or was grady. It the, okay because like the grady. bartender guy was like pretty no it was grady because he's the one trying to get him to kill the kid like, right, great right. you know the lloyd's just like trying to give him drinks and butter yeah, him up I yeah like but, lloyd. but wait you already have i do like lloyd too but you already have the 237 open with the key in it and the kid gets strangled and all that that's already corporeal yeah that one well it's it's questionable as to whether he did it himself and all that the door i will say the door with the key it's it's but you don't know if that's a ghost doing it or not you know what i mean or like Jack Nicholson possessed or something. Or something, whatever, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I still like the idea. I think the mirror concept is super cool. And like it's some of those elements with Stephen King or has these really cool ideas. And I'm not sure they translate to the silver screen that well, you know? Right. Like Stanley Kubrick's amazing and mm-hmm. did an amazing job in this in many ways. But, yeah, you so, know, you so don't get that. So apparently – when Stephen King wrote the book, he also wrote a screenplay. I heard and they were that. both optioned. They're both optioned. Kubrick, what I guess what his sort of process was, is he'd make a movie, then he'd go and he'd just read a bunch of books. He's randomly kind of picked books that he wanted to read. And he read The Shining and he liked The Shining, but he had no interest in Stephen King's you know, screenplay. So, you know, apparently he'd like to go off of books. Because he liked to read the entire story and be able to experience it 
instead of writing his own stuff and sort of being inside of it as he's writing it, you know what I mean, and not being able to experience it outside. And then he t- would take the things that struck him about that and then make, you know, adapt the movie based on that. Do you know, do you know, I don't know much about Stanley Kubrick, but do I don't you know, know, I don't know a whole lot. He sounds like an, an ass. I, a I bit. yeah. Just because of the whole, like, so obviously Stephen King wrote this demanding. Demanding. I well, think eccentric is the word. But then he throws in, like, the whole, so Stephen King gets in a car accident and he owned a red VW bug and that's what's crushed underneath the big rig when he they're first going to the hotel. So he was oh. kind of like, it was almost like an FU. Interesting. And I think that's why there's, there's kind of like an animosity thing going on. Well, I will say that Stephen King is on my side when it comes to Wendy. Because he said that her character is like one of the most misogynistic sort of portrayals right. of women on fit in film at the point at which he said this. He said she's there to do two things, scream and be stupid. But she did a great job of both. And But then and, in and the end she dinner, wins. Yeah. obviously. Or it was eggs. I, the, I, <laughs> yeah, she can make a meal. I wouldn't say in the end she eggs. wins. I think in the end she lives. She doesn't win. Well, I, she did things that was were successful. Despite the fact that she appears weak. Yeah, I, I do appreciate that Stephen King is jumping in there and being like, that's bullshit. And I think that we should have amped up that female character. Remember, all the other movies that we're reviewing at this time, as we've said as a theme that we've pulled through, have really strong female leads. But I thought what was weird and I kind of wound up liking about Wendy was that she was so pathetically weak as a physical form. But then, like we said, she succeeded in everything that she did. So you've got to give her some credit. Whether you like her or the actress or not, right. she still made it she, out. She, she succeeded. She has almost no bearing on the actual end of the movie. It doesn't matter. It's The two are intrinsically She's, tied together. She Yeah, she sets the, the tone for throughout though like she gives you that panicked feeling because well yeah i mean she, i mean she's literally the only other character in the movie right i mean the kid's the kid but you don't you know what i mean he's the kid so she's the only person you can follow around i mean jack's I, crazy i liked it because it was something different i would agree with that I, like i said i the concept is is solid and talking about it i can get behind it i just the experience of watching her maybe want to shake her every time she was on screen you'd and, break her if you shook her i, I yeah i mean her Eyes would roll out of her head because Wouldn't her you eyes be able were to get to her yet. through all that corduroy. Like there was, her clothes were so like layered. <laughs> the corduroy and the boots. Dude, the hair was boots horrible. with the fur. <laughs> the hair. I don't think the hair was. Oh, her uh, hair was so thin. She girl she had, had some really rogan. Thin, yeah, braid so that bad. hair up. <laughs> yeah, she needs some help. While searching for Jack, Wendy discovers he has been typing pages of a repetitive manuscript. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. She begs Jack to leave the hotel with Danny, but he threatens her before she knocks him unconscious with a baseball bat. She drags him into the kitchen and locks him in the pantry, but she and Danny are both trapped at the hotel. Jack has disabled the hotel's two-way radio and snowcat. Later, Jack converses through the pantry door with Grady, who unlocks the door. Danny writes red rum on the outside of the bathroom door and begins to repeatedly call red rum, alarming Wendy. When Wendy sees the word reversed in the bedroom mirror, the word is revealed to be murder. Jack begins hacking through the quarter's main door with a firefighter's axe, Wendy sends Danny through the bathroom window, but it will not open sufficiently for her to pass. Jack breaks through the bathroom door, shouting, Here's Johnny! But retreats after Wendy slashes his hand with a butcher's knife. Hearing Halloran arriving in the snowcat, Jack leaves the room. He murders Halloran with the axe in the lobby and pursues Danny into the hedge maze. Wendy runs through the hotel looking for Danny, encountering ghosts and a cascade of blood Danny envisioned in Boulder. She also finds Halloran's corpse in the lobby. 
Danny lays a false trail to mislead Jack, who is following his footprints before hiding behind a snowdrift. Danny escapes from the maze and reunites with Wendy. They escape in Halloran's snowcat while Jack freezes to death in the snow. In a photograph in the hotel hallway, Jack Torrance smiles front and center amid a crowd of party revelers at the Overlook's 4th of July Ball, 1921. All right, so we already talked about most of this, so I'm just going to skip to the snow maze. So Snow Maze was pretty cool. Um, I appreciate how resourceful Danny was and the whole backtracking and trying to cover up his trail. Yeah, so honestly, I think this movie, everything everyone does in this movie is a reaction to something except for that kid doing one smart thing, which is I'm going to backtrack and I'm going to get out of the way and then I'm going to get the hell out of there. Pretty much everything else is a reaction. The wife's bonking the husband on the head is a re- is a reaction to him backing her up. Her putting him in the pantry, eh, mildly okay, maybe a little forward thinking, but it's basically a reaction to that whole thing. Like, I think the kid is the only person who does anything worthwhile. Well, I mean, you could argue that his that's a reaction to the dad chasing him. No, no, but it's like a plan. It's like a forward plan. It's like I'm gonna right lead him into this maze, lead him in, and then kind of get him well enough, and he does not. I kind of feel like, but. Yeah, I liked it. I mean, you, you know, it, I wasn't 100% on it because I was kind of like, um, <laughs> you backtracked like three feet. Yeah. And like the dad's just going to be like, oh, okay, you backtracked. And like just look around in the next – and then you would just find the next footprints and start following them again. But, you know, whatever. In the movie, they made it work. So I thought that was good. Yeah, I, I figured at that point – I mean, there's there's a risk, right, that he's going to realize that he hasn't seen foot, the footprints end. But I feel like Jack's like kind of walking and looking at them and looking up and kind of moving. And I feel like he goes past the point and he mm-hmm. doesn't realize like where do these things end. Um, and he's already taking other turns and he's doing whatever. And he kind of feels like the kid's – he thinks the kid's being smarter and he's trying out smarter or whatever. So he's kind of, I'm going to get you, uh, you know. Right. I could buy it. I feel like if he did do the drinking, like if the hotel provided that alcohol, whether or not it was real, like he in his mind he's drunk. So maybe he was more susceptible and in that rage to miss the, the footsteps. Yeah. 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 I like the fake mental booze. That was cool. Yeah. That was definitely cool. That okay. whole scenario. Yeah. We, we've got fake mental ice cream and fake mental booze. Yeah. So you're getting the high without the calories. That yeah, mark, market that thing. That's some good stuff right there. Yeah, it is. So then they escape in the snowcat after Wendy kind of wanders around for a couple scenes and, and misses the misses the end. And then you have the, the shot, of course, of the fake Jack Nicholson frozen, which mm-hmm. I thought was okay, although it was abrupt in how they showed it. I felt like it was weirdly a weird sort of like, boom, oh, we're just going to show this because we made it and right. it cost a lot of money. <laughs> uh, it was atrocious. It was just, let's just put that out there. I mean – I think we're just so used to better special effects today and like with Madame Tussauds, you know, wax figures, like they look realistic. I literally was like, who is that? (laughs) I was like, I think that's supposed to be Jack. But, you know, why didn't they just paint Jack Nicholson's face blue and stick some fake icicles on him for like the 30 seconds he was going to be on screen? So and then we have the very last reveal, which is the photograph with Jack Torrance. All right. I didn't get that. What, What the heck, you guys? Could you explain that to me? I mean, I think it's trying to show that – it's one of two things. Either he's dead and now the hotel owns him and it's assimilating him into this group of spirits that it has or whatever. Or it's that he was legitimately a reincarnation of whoever this guy was in 1921 who was the original caretaker, which if you believe that, it does bring up a very interesting um, conversation around Danny's powers – 
vis-a-vis this guy who had been reincarnated from, you know, somebody who was at the hotel earlier. So, you know, are Danny's powers derived from his father being some reincarnated thing or not? You know, it's kind of an interesting take. So there was a quick part where he says, I felt like I've been here before. So I almost agree with the second part where he's reincarnated. I don't know. And, like, I'm a big believer in, like, reincarnation in general. But you're not usually reincarnated as the same exact physical form. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I that, mean, that was kind of obnoxious. Like, oh, you look exactly the same as you do in 1970 as you do in 1921. So what? And, and you're now how old? You know, 50? So 40? So you would died immediately in 1921 and 10 years later you were reborn. So now you can be the same age. Like, I, I don't know. I, just the timeline didn't make any sense to me either. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's thematic, right? I'm not necessarily sure that it works from a logical standpoint. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think it was just so that you would recognize that he was back. I, I mean, I personally like the idea of him just being integrated into the hotel. It, 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 you don't have to deal with all this actual reincarnation and then Danny and his powers and how those are kind of related to the hotel. I just – I like the fact that it's kind of like him being integrated. I I wanted him to be just, like, reabsorbed in the, into the hotel. I mean, that would have been fine. But then they went to, like, the trouble of putting him in that picture in a specific year, right in the middle. And then to Helen's earlier points, they made specific references yeah, sure. around, you've been the caretaker here all the time. And then, yeah, like, I've remembered this from once before. So, I, honestly, if they had actually dropped out those other references that kind of built up this idea that he was reincarnated, I would have liked it better that it was just like, oh, now he's trapped in the photograph. Now he's trapped here forever type of thing. I think would have been totally fine. So I have a few fun facts. Um, The scene where he's chopping down the door, first of all, when he says, hello, Johnny, that was just him ad-libbing. And that was the one ad-lib line that they kept in the movie. Oh, wow. Yep. Um, second, he was Jack Nicholson for real was a volunteer firefighter, so they gave him a prop door, but he got through it too quickly, and then <laughs> he went through sixty real doors in order to get the right shot. Sixty, sixty, holy wow. crap! Kubrick's nuts. So he was a beastly, beastly man, I guess. He was swole. Isn't that what we say now? Swole. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like that. That's what Lego Batman says. So oh, yeah. really? No, like yeah. that. I work with a lot of younger people, so. Yeah, bangers for crazy parties and swole for when you're going to the gym. Okay. (laughs) So I thought that was kind of a fun fact. And then um, there's a documentary called Room 237. That's not the one that I guess you watched. I don't know. Okay. So it discusses some of the conspiracy theories related to the movie. Did you Mm -hmm. read any about that? No, I did not. Okay. So apparently some people think that Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing and that this is his way of saying, hey, I faked it because of the sweater that Danny wears. Has Apollo 11. Yeah. There's a prominent placement of Tang, which is the official space drink of this time. I did not notice that. And I love my good Tang. (laughs) I didn't notice the Tang either, but apparently it was in the supply room. You know I'm good with product placements. You are. I missed the... Yeah, I totally missed the Tang. I did not see the Tang. I saw a lot of peaches. Yes. (laughs) Lots of peaches. (laughs) There was a switch of the rooms from 217 to 237. So Mm -hmm. the hotel that is the outside which is in England, and I don't remember the name of that particular hotel, didn't want to use 217 because they actually had a room 217. So they uh-huh. wanted them to switch it in the movie. I got But you. it got switched to 237, and the moon is 237,000 miles from Earth. Oh. Yeah. Oh. But I like then that. the daughter says this is shenanigans. Sure. Yeah, obviously. Who <laughs> wants to admit to, you know. Faking the moon landing? Faking the moon landing. Gotcha. That would be crazy. 
So I feel like we should bring back the kill, chill, and thrill segment that we had. I like it. This one's going to be a little harder because there's a lot less characters. So I feel like we should also include the lovely ladies in Scatman's room. Sure, why not? Oh, shit. You just opened up a whole Whole new world. Yeah. Now I got to change mine. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, Ray? I think you should go first. Yeah. All right. Let's see. All right. Who would I kill? Um, I would certainly kill Wendy. I'm sorry. Oh. I'm sorry. She's already I'd been have... through so listen, much. Listen, Ray. listen. I I, I would have had that bat, and I just would have. It wouldn't have mattered. So, um, I would kill Wendy. Who would I chill with? Obviously Lloyd, because Lloyd is awesome. And then who would I thrill? Hmm. This is a tough one. But you know, I'm gonna go with the lady in the bathroom. Like before she decomposed. I just wouldn't look in the mirror. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, as long as you look in the mirror, you're cool. She had that creepy laugh. <laughs> I'm like, baby. That's okay for you. I'm like, I'm like baby, just don't talk. <laughs> I don't want to look at you in the mirror. All mirrors are covered. Exactly. <laughs> and I have exactly. headphones on. Exactly. And any opinions? Man, no. Yeah, this this was a tough one. You know, I okay, so just to jump right into it, who would I kill? So I picked a little bit of an offbeat character. I said I would kill Grady, that asshole. Yeah, he is an asshole. All right, thank you, thank you. So he murdered his family. He's back in there with a stupid British accent. All right, you're dying, Grady. You're off. Chill. I had also written a giant Lloyd for chill. Yeah. For hanging. We probably all wrote, wrote Lloyd. He's a cool bartender. He's a cool dude. He's got a creepy robotic smile. Why would we not want to hang out with him? And a thrill. I mean, we're probably in this together, right, Helen? That we're hanging out with Scatman and the girls is what I put together. <laughs> I want the whole package. Yeah. No, I have the same three. <laughs> Except no, for the, I didn't think about the girls. No, I'm going to show. I'm showing the book. Shut up. Okay. <laughs> That's crazy. Don't know if you can actually kill ghosts, but I feel like in this case, we kind of have to. We'd get them. All right. Now that we've reviewed the movie and got through our kill, chill, and thrill, it's time to rate it. Only the best movies make it to the top of the hill, and to be the best, they have to perform in three categories. The first is technical composition, which represents how well the movie's made, including the script, directing, cinematography, acting, and effects. Uh, the second is impact, which represents how well the movie accomplished its emotional intent. Was it scary or funny? Did it make you question mankind or the nature of your reality? And finally, third is enjoyment, which is pretty simple. How much did you enjoy the movie? Would you watch it again? Do you never want to watch it again? So, Anne, do you want to go through your ratings? You want me to do all three at the same time? Yep. That's like our new format. I like it. Okay, so really quick. From a technical composition, um, I give this an eight. I ranked it really high because I thought that the cinematography was fantastic. Um, I didn't think that there were a lot of special effects that uh, were not delivered very well. You know, and a lot of the special effects that they did have, I thought, in fact, were done well with the blood waterfall and just like the creepiness factor and, you know, the old lady decaying. I mean, really, they were all done pretty well. Um, Impact-wise, I didn't rate Impact high. I give it a five. I just kind of thought I liked the movie, but the impact was not super crazy, you know, certainly by modern day standards. So enjoyment, I did like it. I liked it actually more than I thought I would like it, but I give it a seven. Okay. Helen. So for technical competency, I gave it a seven. I think we had discussed Jack Nicholson's face at the end. I think that was really the only thing that didn't do it for me. All the acting I thought was good. Everything else was fine. For impact, I gave it an eight because I thought 
I was creeped out and you felt the isolation throughout. So I felt, I thought that they did a good job of making you feel what they were feeling in just Wendy's horrifyingly filled voice. Um, and then enjoyment, I gave it an eight too, because I would watch it again. I felt like I caught more the second time around. So I would think maybe a third time around and catch even more than that. Okay. For technical composition, I rated it a seven as well. I thought it was uh, well-made. The Wendy character I had a problem with, the fact that Jack Nicholson's character was not sympathetic, the fact that the family never, ever felt like it was an actual family, that's kind of dropped it down for me. Uh, Impact, I rated it as a five. I like the claustrophobia, but I felt like, going back to the family thing, there's a lot of surface, it it kept to the surface, I guess, more than I expected. I kind of wanted it to dig in to some of the aspects of the movie where it didn't. And finally, enjoyment, I'm going to rate it as a four. Uh, it was a slow burn. I didn't know how I was going to uh, take the movie, and it being a classic, I was hoping I was going to like it uh, kind of more than I ended up liking it. So a four. Okay, so the scores. Helen, you rated this at the highest at a 7.67. I'm right in the middle of the pack at a ominous 6.66, or you know, rounding up 6.67, but we can ignore that for the time being. Um, and Ray, you're at the bottom. At a 5.33, which gave us an overall rating for The Shining of a 6.56. Okay, well, that obviously doesn't place it at the top of the hill, which currently Ghostbusters is sitting (laughs) at the top of the hill with an 8.78. It does put it slightly below Scream at a 6.75, so I am not sure that this movie is worse than Scream, but... That feels about right. It's in the same area. You know why? Because Scream is funny, so it ups the enjoyment a little bit. Yeah, I agree. It's true, yeah. Okay, if you enjoy this podcast, help us grow our audience. Rate and review us on iTunes, and please share with your friends and family on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms. Give us a shout-out to tell us how we're doing or suggest movies to review. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us at host.hth at gmail.com. I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of Hilltop Horror Movie Reviews. I'm your host, Ray Richards, and on behalf of my co-hosts, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time. 